Welcome to another edition of Anthony T's Horror Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. In this edition, I will be talking about AEW Revolution in this episode. This was such a big pay-per-view that I need two segments to talk about this show. So, this show is pretty much going to be AEW Revolution talk. In fact, this is very... AEW heavy this episode in terms of news and the Revolution 2023 pay-per-view that recently happened. I will talk about that. Then, in what's Anthony T. watching, I will be talking about one of my most anticipated films of 2023, Scream 6. Does this film live up to the hype that everybody has been saying? That this is the best Scream film since the original. I will let you know in what's Anthony T watching. But first, the news. Starting it off is news about Eli Roth's upcoming film, Thanksgiving. Now, I'm really looking forward to this film. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited ever since seeing the fake trailer in Grindhouse. That I've been waiting for Eli Roth to finally make Thanksgiving. And now he's finally going to do that. Make the theatrical film. So I'm excited for it. But here's the problem. Eli Roth has hired a TikTok star to join the cast of Thanksgiving. According to Variety... Addison Ray has joined the cast of Eli Roth's slasher film Thanksgiving. Now, this really irks me to such a degree here. Because seriously, there are a lot of actors and actresses who are looking for roles. Who are looking for their big break in Hollywood. Who are looking for basically anything to get on their resume and they cast a TikTok star in one of the film's roles. It pisses me off every time Hollywood tries to do a stunt casting like this. It is a disgrace to all the working actors and actresses who do this as a profession. To have a role taken away from them and given to someone who sits there on their little cell phones, make some videos, and get thousands and thousands of likes. It just aggravates me. And I'm appalled that Eli Roth, out of all people, would do this. Seriously, Eli. Come on! I used to look to you as like one of the godfathers of filmmaking. Like a Quentin Tarantino, a Kevin Smith, a Robert Rodriguez. Now you've stooped so low to allow a TikTok star to join the cast of one of your films. It is a disgrace. Seriously, it just aggravates me that these young people who go on their phones and look at their phones, do a five-minute video, look at me, get thousands of likes, and get hired to be in a theatrical film. 
It is a disgrace. Seriously, to all those hard men and women who have been acting for years or are starting to act in these Hollywood-type films. I can understand if this person was a true actor, but someone whose claim to fame is TikTok gets me aggravated when they're cast for any movie role. Because, first of all, you don't have the proper training to become an actor. And second, you're just sitting there making videos. Hey, look at me! And get my thousands and thousands of likes. I don't get it. Seriously, Eli Roth. Really. You're supposed to be one of the filmmakers where you don't need to do this stunt casting. If Quentin Tarantino did it, I'd be saying the same thing about Quentin Tarantino. But there's a reason Quentin Tarantino doesn't do that. There's the same reason Robert Rodriguez doesn't do that. Or Kevin Smith doesn't do that. I don't know whose insane idea was it to include a TikTok star in Eli Ross Thanksgiving. Was this Eli's fault? Or was this the stupid studio TriStar Pictures who wanted some recognizable face from the internet in their film? I just don't get it. Seriously. These TikTok stars do not belong on the big screen. Unless they go and get the proper acting training and decide to become an actor, a real actor, not one of those... People who goes in front of a phone for five minutes, gets thousands of likes, and considers that acting. I'm sorry, I don't consider that acting if you're just there getting thousands of likes. Do it the way it's supposed to be done. Go to acting school or find somewhere to get proper training. Not this crappy TikTok app. Where you're just there to just get thousands and thousands of likes. And you think you're a celebrity when in reality you're not. It just aggravates me that Hollywood is tuning into this TikTok generation. When there are actual actors and actresses that could be used for roles like this. And there are young actors and actresses out there that could be used for a role like this. But Eli Roth, or the producers of Thanksgiving, decided they needed to go to TikTok to try to get some attention for their film. And that is disgusting. Seriously, it is downright disgusting. As an actor, or in this case, an actress who has actual acting experience or the proper training. Since that movie story really aggravated me, let's move on to wrestling news. And we have a new TNT champion. Yes! I know later in the show I will go over Wardlow versus Samoa Joe at Revolution in which Wardlow won the TNT title. Well, he lost the title. Both literally 
in any reality. First, the day of Dynamite, Wardlow posted a video showing his smashed up rental car with all of his gear stolen, including the TNT Championship. Now, this is not a work, people. This actually happened in real life. Someone smashed Wardlow's rental and took his gear and took his TNT title with them. Meaning, they were stolen in reality. This was no script. This is actual fact. Then day of the show, Wardlow loses the TNT title to Powerhouse Hobbs after QT Marshall interfered in that match. And a very good match until that point where it was Flo's count anywhere. The episode took place on March 8th on Dynamite. That was surprising that Powerhouse Hobbs won the title that night. Seriously. If Now, the only problem I have with this decision here is... If they were going to give the title to Powerhouse Hobbs... They should have just done a three-way at Revolution... And gave the title to Powerhouse Hobbs then. Not do it on Dynamite... And then have QT Marshall interfere. But back to the reality of the story here. Talk about a really bad 24 hours for Wardlow. First, his rental car gets broken into with his gear and everything stolen, including that TNT title. Then being told by Tony Khan that day that he has to drop the title to Powerhouse Hobbs. After just winning it a couple days ago. Talk about a really bad 24 hours for Wardlow the person. Because A, your gear and everything was taken away from you and stolen. And B, you find out you're a transitional champion. That's gonna suck. Seriously. But I really hope... This means for Wardlow that he's going to challenge for the world title soon. I hope. As for Powerhouse Hobbs, it's about time they finally gave him the TNT title. As it's been long overdue. As he's a very good talent. But man, talk about a very bad 24 hours for a wrestler. It's not cool to have your gear stolen, your rental car smashed, and your title being stolen from you in real life. And I'm using real life because we all know how AEW likes to blend reality and fiction. But this is real life here, people. And finally in news, FTR are rumored to have signed a long-term deal with AEW. Now... The story of this is that FTR was pretty much going to just sit out the rest of their contract as their contract was about ready to come up in April. But it looks like that the April expiration date was a storyline purpose, people. Remember how I told you in the last story, AEW tends to blend reality and fiction in their storylines. This is one of them. Because they weren't even scheduled to be 
back with this promotion until a new deal was signed. Now there are rumors that they may be locked in for a long-term deal. So, when they appeared at Revolution, that was a complete shocker. Because I wasn't expecting FTR to come back this soon. Literally. Because if you're leaving the company in April, and Double or Nothing is May, you're not coming back to this company. Seriously. You are not coming back to this company. But FTR are old school. They'll work the fans. They'll work the internet. They'll work their podcast. They'll work anything that can be worked. So when they showed up during the Guns interview segment after their tag team championship win at Revolution was a complete shock because literally I was thinking this team was not coming back to AEW until either A, they had a new contract or B, they were gone completely. And it looks like they probably have a new contract because why else would you bring FTR back? Seriously. Just to job to the guns? That would make no sense at all. Seriously. The only reason why you bring FTR back is for FTR to win the tag team titles and bring some stability back into the tag team division in AEW. Because it's been kind of lacking a little bit ever since the trios division was announced. But the fact that FTR looks like, according to various sources have signed a long-term deal with AEW. It's very good if FTR really did sign that long-term deal with AEW because it helps their tag division in a big way because you now have a team that can lead that division if the Young Bucks want to go do the trios route. So I was kind of surprised they came back at Revolution because I wasn't expecting them back quite Seriously, I thought they would try to drive this out to April and see what they can get on the free agent market. But if it looks like they signed a new deal, which I believe they did, but this is a rumor, people. So don't take this as a fact that FTR signed a long-term deal. But I don't see why they're back on television if they haven't re-signed. So... I'm hoping that the rumor that FTR signed a long-term deal with AEW is true. Because it really helped the tag team division. You'll probably know when they fight the guns. Seriously. Because if they win the tag team titles, they signed a long-term deal. If they don't and they put over the guns, hey, would that be good for the tag division? Please. I am sick of Austin and Colton Gunn with those belts. I'm sorry. They ha don't have the complete package that I see in the AEW wrestler yet. They can get there, but not yet. So I really hope FTR did sign that long-term deal because I'm really sick of the Gun Club's title reign. And with that, that's the news. Hi, I'm Anthony T. And I'm director Andrew Duran. And we are the... Two and we're putting Rated R back into podcasting. Every month we will be dropping an episode on the Doc Discussions Network. We'll be chatting about some of our favorite films, news, reviews, and 
maybe interviews. You can find Two From Hell on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast providers. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at Two From Hell Podcast. Trust me, you're seriously not going to want to miss the show. Welcome back. AEW recently held their annual Revolution pay-per-view on March 5th, 2023 in San Francisco, California. The pay-per-view started with one pre-match on the show, which is rare because usually they have two or three pre-matches before the pay-per-view. We only got one pre-match on Zero Hour, and that was the Lucha Brothers and Mark Briscoe defeating the Varsity Athletes of Tony Nese, Josh Woods, and Ari Davari. It was a good match. Then we pretty much moved on to the pay-per-view, which is a good thing because literally there's only one pre-show match. Sure, I probably would have wanted another pre-show match, but I like the fact that they're not running 10 million matches on this card between the pre-show and the actual show. I hope they do this more often with their pay-per-views, because it at least makes the matches more important. The pay-per-view started off with Chris Jericho versus Ricky Stocks. It was a really good match to start off this pay-per-view. As the two worked well together, they really did a good job really making sure that the action had a non-stop intense pace to it. It was a really good opener. I enjoyed it a lot. Crowd was really into this match in behind Ricky Stocks for the most parts. There's some really good technical wrestling spots towards the end of this match. The finish came when Simi Guevara comes out. Even though the Jericho Appreciation Society was banned from ringside during this match. But Action Andretti came out to make the save from out of nowhere. Literally. All this confusion allowed Chris Jericho to use Floyd the Bat to break a submission that he was in. Jericho goes for the Judas effect, but Ricky Stocks counters the move and blocks the Judas effect. That was like literally, I think, the first time I've ever seen that move be blocked. And I think that was a great decision to have that spot in the match. Especially... Especially when it's helping Ricky Stocks as a wrestler. As the theme of the night seemed to be, for pretty much all the matches, elevating the youth in AEW. Because in almost every match, it was about elevating the up-and-coming talent in the promotion. Now, back to what I was saying. Stocks then would hit a knee, then his finisher, the Rochambeau, for the pin, and he beats Chris Jericho for a second time. Only a few people have beat Chris Jericho twice in AEW. Ricky Stocks is one of them. And I really think Tony Khan did a great job in this pay-per-view in elevating his young talent. This was the kind of pay-per-view where you saw the young talent be elevated in this company. And that's a very good thing. Because they're eventually going to be the stars of the promotion. At some point, they need to be elevated. 
And this pay-per-view did a great job in elevating its young talent, as you'll see during the course of this review. The next match, Jungle Boy versus Christian Cage in a match dubbed as the Final Burial, which is basically a Buried Alive match. And like this match, this match elevated AEW's young talent. This was one of those matches where there wasn't much in-ring, as a lot of the action in this match was taking place outside the floor. And which is good, because literally it's a Buried Alive match, and the objective is to get up to the stage, throw your opponent in the casket, slam the casket shut. So it made sense that there wasn't much in-ring action in the match. Match goes into the crowd to start off, in which Cage tries to run away and heads to the entrance until he realizes that he's heading towards the casket. So he heads back to the ring. The crowd's really behind Jungle Boy in, in this match. Christian Cage uses a strap at one point to choke Jungle Boy. When Cage opens the casket, for the first time in the match, we find chairs. And the chairs have been a focal point in this feud. And how fitting chairs would be in the casket. The trio would brawl around the casket a lot, which is good because the objective of the match is to get the other person into the casket. At one point, Cage tries to slam the casket door shut, but Jungle Boy survives that attempt. Cage then would hit the kill switch on the dirt and try to use a chair to hit his chair toe maneuver to no avail. The finish comes when Cage gets the shovel and tries to swing the shovel at Jungle Boy and misses as Jungle Boy ducks. And he manages to get... Cage down to hit the snare trap submission, and in the process uses a shovel for extra leverage. When Cage is finally passed out from it, he finally nails the chair toe on Christian Cage, as that's been a thing during this whole feud, where Jungle Boy has been hesitant to use that move, but he used it in this match at the end. Then he puts Christian Cage in the casket, kisses him on his forehead, slams the casket shut for the win, and the casket looked like it was taking a roller coaster ride. As the way the casket went down, it looked like it was going down a roller coaster. Overall, that was a really good match. Again, elevating the young talent in AEW. That's what this pay-per-view did elevate its young talent. It didn't have this plethora of WWE veterans winning every match. It elevated the young talent that is the future of this promotion. And Jungle Boy Jack Perry is the future of this promotion. Then we get what I consider one of the three matches of the night. This would be a match of the night on any other COD but this COD. The Elite versus the House of Black. I know this build was only two weeks, but I've wanted this match. I don't care if I needed a two-week build. That's a match I wanted to see from the beginning, since the House of Black came back and the trio's titles were announced. 
That was the match I wanted so badly. And it delivered. The match was electric. Omega and Matthews started off. Then Malachi Black tagged himself in. Those two were very good in the ring together with each other. I would love to see a singles match with Omega in Black. That I think would be a great match. This match was a very fast-paced match. A lot of high-flying spots from the Elite. A great mixture of brawling in high-flying spots, period. Every time Brody King was in this match, that guy looked like he was a monster. The type of monster that you would see in a Brock Lesnar-type wrestler. He was great in this match. A lot of vicious strikes. There was a point in the match where Omega was distracted by Julia Hart as he was going for the one-winged angel, only for Black to get out of that move. He tries to nail Black with a knee, only to hit Julia Hart. This led Black to hit Black Mass for a two-count as Nick Jackson broke the pin. Nick gets thrown out of the ring by King and Matthews. As King and Matthews hit the Dante Inferno double-team finisher for a two-count, the finish came when the Elite was super-kicking people. They hit the BTE trigger for a two-count. But when the Young Bucks tried to hit the Meltzer driver, the House of Black grabbed Nick Jackson off the apron, leaving Matt all alone for the Black Mass. Brody King and Buddy Matthews came into the ring, hit the double-team Dante's Inferno for the win. And the new AEW Trios champions, the House of Black. This was a great match. I think it was the great call to put the Trios titles on the House of Black. As they've been building the House of Black ever since they came back into AEW. As this monstrous, unstoppable force. And a loss here probably would have killed momentum. And that would not have been good for that trio. That was another great booking decision on Tony Khan's part because literally, once they came back, they came back with this purpose to cleanse AEW. And one of the things to do is to win titles. You can't go out and act like you're acting that way and not win titles. So they actually needed to win this match badly. The Elite could afford this loss. The House of Black couldn't. They made the right call here. Because if the House of Black lost this match, it probably would have killed all momentum. And they were going back to where they were right before they took a sabbatical the last time. At least they're booking right. This whole show was booked very well. The right people won. And the six individuals pulled out an excellent match. Seriously, this match could have been best match of the show on any other card. If it wasn't for the fact that we had a 60-minute excellent Iron Man match, which I will get to later, this would have been match of the night. If that wasn't... In fact, this is also another match on this show that could have been match of the night, which I'll save for a little bit later. As I'm going in order here. Next up, we had the women's three-way match. As Soraya versus Ruby Soho versus the women's champion Jamie Hayter. This was a good match. It was put in a very difficult spot in this card. Because 
This match was sandwiched between the trios titles match and the Paige Moxley Texas Death match. And for the match itself, it was a good match. It was probably one of the shortest matches on this card, but still, it was a good match. As there wasn't a bad match on this card. The women in this match did a good job with the way they worked the match. The women had great chemistry with each other here. As it was fast paced, the crowd was into this match. They were heavily behind Jamie Hayter. There were a lot of shenanigans in this match from Tori Storm and Britt Baker distracting the referee. But that was to be expected in this match. The fish came when Soho and Hater were trading roll-up pins. And Hater manages to roll up Soho for the three count. I thought it was kind of a weak finish. But that's probably my only complaint with the match. Was the fact that the near falls led to a pinfall. But still, it was a good match. But everything was about the post-match here. As Storm comes in to attack Hater, then Britt Baker evens the odds and helps Jamie Hater, but she gets attacked too. Then Ruby Soho comes in and helps Britt Baker and Jamie Hater by throwing Soraya and Tori Storm over the top rope. They stand in the ring with each other. When Ruby Soho turns on Jamie Hater and Britt Baker and aligns herself with Soraya and Tori Storm, Storm would proceed to attack a cameraman and smash a camera. And then Soraya and Storm hit the ring as the three embraced spray painting Hater and Baker. Overall, it was a good match. I enjoyed it. It was short on time, but with this pay-per-view, I could understand why they had nine minutes. You don't want to have long, drawn-out matches and run up to the top of the hour. It's been so nerve-wracking with a lot of these AEW pay-per-views to get right up to that 12 o'clock hour mark. And thankfully, this one didn't. But overall, this is setting up to be a nice feud between the AEW Originals and the Outsiders. I'm going to take a quick break here because, well, we got four more matches to go. And this is running way over the allotted time I had planned for this episode as we are talking about AEW's revolution in this episode coming up after the break we'll talk about the last four matches on the pay-per-view including quite possibly one of the best Iron Man matches of all time and a match that is probably going to be match of the year after it's all said and done for 2023 I'll be right back with some more thoughts on AEW Revolution 2023. Welcome to Dark Discussions, your place for the discussion of horror film, fiction, and all that's fantastic. A weekly podcast here, the discussion is about the most recent horror and genre films. Intelligent talk on a genre that deserves intelligence. A conversation between co-hosts discussing not only the film, but also the connotation that the directors and screenwriters are trying to articulate. When you want more than a review, listen to Dark Discussions. 
And speaking of perception, there's just one more scene I want to talk about, which is after Caleb discovers that Kyoto's a robot, Kyoto kind of peels off her skin, showing him what's underneath. Now, wait a minute. I know where you're going with this, but tell me you weren't already thinking this 15 minutes earlier in the film. Exactly what he's thinking at that moment. Which is he's a robot, too. Oh, I consider the possibility. Right, and that's what I like, is the fact that the writers are smart enough to know that this is what the audience would be thinking. We've all seen Blade Runner. <laughs> right, exactly. www.darkdiscussions.com Wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. Moving on this special edition of AVT's Horror and Wrestling Show, where I review AEW's Revolution 2023. The next match on the card is Adam Page versus John Moxley in a Texas death match. Adam Page came out to new music as he came out to Ghost Riders in the Sky by the Outlaws. It's a very good song. It kind of fits his gimmick. It's very weird not hearing his old theme song after hearing it for all these years. But this song, I really kind of like. Really gets you in the mood for an Adam Page match. Seriously. That was like great choosing by Tony Khan to change Adam Page's entrance music and use licensed music. As it really does get you excited to see Adam Page wrestle. The match with John Moxley started off quickly when Moxley was coming through the barricade. Page attacked him, and this match instantly started in the crowd. Moxley got busted open early when Page raked the barbed wire on his forehead. It wouldn't be a typical John Moxley match without John Moxley getting busted open. The fact that he got busted open early, well, it's not surprising. At one point in the match, John Moxley uses a triangle submission and grabs a fork and uses it to nail Adam Page on his forehead with it, making Page a bloody mess. That was a disgusting sight to see, everyone. And from there, there was more chaos. You had a chair wrapped in bobbed wire. You also had a sick spot where... John Moxley got two bricks from underneath the ring. He puts the bricks in between Adam Page's hand and then stops on the bricks. That was the sixth spot. You also had Adam Page doing some crazy stuff with the barbed wire, including hitting Deadeye onto a barbed wire chair. Page will also take a nasty fall in this match. When he went off the top turnbuckle and went head first into a bobbed wire board. John Moxley would also hit the Death Rider during the match, then stomp, then got a brick and used it and stomped it on Page for an eight count. As this was a Texas Death Match where it was either you win by knockout or submission. The finishes match is when. Adam Page uses the brick to hit Moxley with it, then hits his buckshot lariat. Then Adam Page throws Mox over the top rope and uses the chain in which 
the chain was wrapped around John Moxley, and he tried to choke him to death, which forced John Moxley to tap out. Where the match was Adam Page in a very brutal Texas death match. This was definitely not for the weak at heart, as this was just insane from start to finish. This is why I like hardcore wrestling, everyone. I like my hardcore wrestling. I like my lucha wrestling. This pay-per-view had a mix of everything. And this Texas death match was very good. Could have been easily match of the night. But that's the main event, which I'll get to in a bit. Then we had Wardlow versus Samojo for the TNT Championship. The action moved at a very good pace in this match. I thought the action was intense. Wardlow is really the future of this company, as this guy can really do some really cool high-flying moves as a big man. As he did a couple during that match, he reminds me of Mike Awesome back in the old ECW. Not the crappy ECW that WWE put out. The old ECW. The one that Paul Heyman ran and owned. There was a lot of power moves in this match. Another thing I really liked about this match was it kept cutting away the powerhouse Hobbs. Because he won the face of the revolution ladder match on Dynamite previously to Revolution. So it was nice to see a cutaway because it's telling you that he's the next challenger for the TNT title. The finish came when Joe was trying to use Wardlow's powerbomb. Symphony, but Wardlow countered it into a choke and shockingly put Joe to sleep to win the TNT title. I did not expect Wardlow to win this match by submission, as he's not known as a submission specialist. He's more of a power guy. It was nice that he won this match by pretty much using Joe's move. Seems like the theme of the night, too, was wrestlers using other wrestlers' moves to win. I'll talk more about that later. Then we had the four-way tag team championship for the AEW World Tag Team titles. We had the Acclaimed versus Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal versus Orange Cassidy and Danhausen versus the AEW Tag Team Champions, the Gun Club. There was a lot of good action in this match, as I really thought everyone worked well in this match. The action moved at a good pace. There was this crazy sequence in this match where the guns hit Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett from behind. Then Sa-Thumb Singh came into the ring to throw the guns out of the ring. Then Dittenhausen went to the ring to confront Singh. Only to be interrupted by Sanjay Dutt. Danhausen sends Dutt out of the ring. Then Orange Cassidy comes into the ring, hits the Orange Punch on Singh. Then Danhausen low blows Singh. Then Singh gets hit with the Fame Master by Billy Gunn. Then Colton and Austin Gunn low blowed their father. As that was a very good sequence in the match. The finish comes when Danhausen tries to go for a pump kick on Austin Gunn, but misses. This leads Colton Gunn to sneak in, and the guns hit their 
310 to Yuma finisher for the victory. In a match where I was surprised that they won cleanly, as I thought they'd probably win again by some sort of shenanigans, but there wasn't in the finish. Post-match, Renee Paquette comes out to the ring to interview Colton and Austin Gunn, with the Guns claiming that they want respect. That's when FTR's music hit, and they proceeded to quickly attack the Gun Club. And in the process, Dax Harwood is bleeding. I've already talked about FTR signing with AEW long term. So my guess is we're getting the guns versus FTR somewhere down the line. Probably double or nothing. As we'll probably see some shenanigans where the guns try to draw this out to double or nothing. But thankfully, FTR looks like they're long term signed. And that's a good thing for this company. And especially their tag division. As now the tag division is back to stability at least. And finally the main event of AEW Revolution. MJF versus Brian Danielson. Now this is a match I've been looking forward to quite frankly. As this is a 60 minute Iron Man match. And there hasn't been a 60 minute Iron Man match in quite a while. I can't even remember the last time someone put on a 60-minute Iron Man match on the magnitude of MJF versus Brian Danielson. So this was definitely the selling point of this pay-per-view. That match alone. And that match really lived up to the hype and then some. As this is literally, I really think, probably hard to top and already... In the beginning of March. So we got a long year ahead of us. But I don't know if another match is going to top the 60 minute Iron Man match between MJF and Brian Danielson. Because that was just such a great match from start to finish. It kept my interest throughout. One of the things that I really loved about this match was first the beginning of this match. Where MJF came out. To an intro of dark music. With the piano beginning. Then the violins playing. Then his entrance theme playing. Then him coming out wearing the devil mask. It really added something to the character of MJF. And it really got the excitement level up already. And the bell hasn't even rung yet. This is a match that is going 60 minutes regardless of what happens. So, one fall ain't going to end this match before the 60 minute mark. So, you have to keep the action moving. You need the right kind of wrestlers to be put into that type of match. Because for an Iron Man match to work, it needs the wrestler to be wrestling at a high level for 60 minutes. And both Brian Danielson and MJF in this match did that very well here. I liked how this match really has some really good moments here. We had MJF playing the heel perfectly. At one point, he was talking to the camera when he was stalling. Is this going to cost me a star, Dave? Referring to Dave Meltzer's rating system we all know that 
If you're not an internet wrestling fan, it's a system in which wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer rates his matches. He always does this for every pay-per-view. And the matches that seem to get the highest amount of stars are either a New Japan Pro Wrestling match or an AEW match. Very rarely do you see a WWE match get a five-star match rating. But it happened last year. But back to the match. There was a lot of really good near falls in this match. It was like great sequences as well. Especially one at the 22nd, 23rd minute mark of the match. Where MJF and Brian Danielson were trading near falls. That was a really great moment in this match. The first fall of this match came at the 25th minute mark when Brian Danielson hit the psycho knee for the three count, putting him up 1-0. Then a minute or two later, MJF low-blowed Brian Danielson for a DQ, giving Brian Danielson a 2-0 lead, only for that to be erased quickly as MJF got two Quick falls to tie it up. As per match stipulation, there was no rest period between falls, which I kind of like because I don't like sitting around for 90 seconds between falls. I just think it's ridiculous and it just slows down the match, in my opinion. There's also some great submission wrestling in this match. There's also some, some great moves, including MJF nailing a elbow from the top rope onto the timekeeper's table. Then a couple minutes later, MJF would also nail a tombstone through a broken table at ringside. This match was crazy at times, too, besides the great technical wrestling. Then at the 40-minute mark, MJF hits the heat seeker, the sit-down pile driver through the ropes for a three-count to get a 3-2 lead. Then at the 48 minute mark of the match, Brian Danielson hits a diving headbutt that busts MJF wide open. He was bleeding profusely. Then a minute or two later, Danielson hits the psycho knee, then gets MJF to tap out to the label lock to tie this match up at three. MJF hits the salt of the earth at the 51st minute mark, he tried to get Brian Danielson to submit to no avail. As Brian Danielson got the ropes to break the hold. The crowd was really hot in this match throughout this entire match. Which is very hard to do in a 60 minute Iron Man match. You also had MGF at times during the match drinking water. It's like, what the f- I've never seen that in an Iron Man match. Seriously. A wrestler drinking water during an Iron Man match. But whatever. Then at the 58 minute mark, Brian Danielson hits the single crab trying to get MJF to submit. He tries to extend one of his arms near the end of the match, but never got the submission. And at the end of 60 minutes, the match was tied at three fulls apiece. Crowd, of course, not happy. Understandably so. I would be because you want a winner or a loser. Then Tony Schiavone came from the announcer's desk 
to ringside to inform Justin Roberts that Tony Khan declared that the match must have a winner. So we have a sudden death period. The period starts when MJF pushes the rough. The rough pushes back into Danielson for a two count. MJF shields the rough to hit a low blow and holds on to Danielson's tights for a two count. MJF tries to use the belt, but the ref threatens to disqualify him and award Danielson the title if he used it. So MJF gave the ref the belt. Only for MJF to grab the dynamite diamond ring. Danielson hits the snap her Karana, then hits the psycho knee for a two count. Danielson goes for a single crab when the referee notices that MJF has the dynamite diamond ring. He takes the ring off of MJF. MJF goes to the ropes, then taps. The ref had to tell Danielson that MJF grabbed the ropes before he tapped. While he was doing that, MJF was hiding on the floor of the ring next to an oxygen tank, which was used between the end of the match and the start of the overtime period. MJF uses that as a weapon and hits Danielson as Danielson was trying to grab MJF back into the ring. MJF gets back into the ring, hits the label lock on an unconscious Brian Danielson to no avail. MJF keeps the pressure on and forces Brian Danielson to tap out with his own finisher in a very great match. Easily one of the best matches of the year. As this 67-68 minute match was done to perfection. Told a great story. Had some great moments. The in-ring work was fantastic. I don't know if this could be another match period that tops this match this year. And going into this pay-per-view... This was the match I was looking most forward to because I literally thought this match might be a match of the year contender. And this is a match of the year contender, if not a very tough match to beat when you think about match of the year. And we're only in the beginning of March, people. We're only in March and we already have quite possibly the match of the year. It's just amazing. 2023's been crazy so far in wrestling. You can add that to the list. A match that's possibly match of the year in March. As I don't know if there's any other match that's going to top that match. Seriously. Overall, AEW Revolution was a great pay-per-view. You had easily three matches that could have been match of the night. You had... The other matches be very good. Overall, this is a five-star pay-per-view and easily probably one of the best pay-per-views of the year. And that was AEW's Revolution 2023. You can find Anthony T's Horror in Wrestling Show on these social media platforms. At Anthony T's Horror Wrestling on Facebook. Instagram in the Slasher app on YouTube at youtube.com slash Media on podcast providers 
like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, and other major podcast providers. And you can also join Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show group over on Facebook. Just type in Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show in the group section. What's Anthony T watching this episode? Well, in the beginning of this podcast, I told you I would be reviewing Scream 6. Yes, I actually went to the theaters and saw a film in theaters instead of just sitting there waiting for 45 days for it to land on Paramount Plus or Peacock. I decided to go to the theaters. This is actually my second horror film this year I went to the theaters for, as I recently went to see Cocaine Bear. But we're not talking about Cocaine Bear here. You know that film is bonkers. Seriously. But enough with that film. Literally. Now, back when the hype for Scream 6 started, Radio Silence was teasing an all-or-nothing approach to Scream 6. Well, when you say all or nothing it's like this could be either a home run film or a film that fails miserably and scream six quite frankly hits the jackpot they talk a good game seriously radio silence by saying all or nothing because when i hear the words all or nothing i think they're gonna either hit a home run, or kill the franchise. And they hit a home run with this entry. In fact, this is better than Scream 5 by far. As I would really put it up there, maybe as the best Scream sequel of them all. And there is a lot of reasons for it. Seriously. First, I think the writing was good in this film. I liked how Guy Busick and James Vanham built did a very good job with the character development in this film. I like how they focused on the sister's trauma subplot, as it really gives the two main characters of this new trilogy more interesting direction. It also had a very good story to go along with it, quite frankly. As this film should have been Jason Takes Manhattan, seriously. But... Jason Takes Manhattan was light on the kills. This film, the kills are just intense. Literally. It's like they upped the ante from the last film. And that's what I think one of the main reasons why Scream 6 is a great horror sequel. Seriously. As Radio Silence really does a great job upping the ante. As directors Matt Bentinelli, Olpin, and Tyler Gillette do a very good job with the way they handle all the kill scenes in this film. I like how they approach the action in this film, as this film had intense action. I can't remember the last time a Scream film had intense action. You probably have to go back to Scream 2 for an intense Scream film, because the action here really is just... Downright intense from start to finish. From that opening scene to the end of this intense film. And you can't say that a lot about horror films. As a lot of horror films slow down. Or a lot of horror films just 
are dumb in the way they approach the action. The directors of this film really do a great job in making sure that the action has every bit of intensity that is needed to keep you interested. This is just great directing from an action standpoint because they do a good job balancing all the action sequences as the action sequences felt like you were literally on the edge of your seat. And again, I can't remember another Scream film that did that. Really, it's just a testament to their direction here. It's just great. Literally. The fact that we're in Scream 6 and it's still a great franchise. You can't say that about many franchises. The only really blemish on the Scream franchise record, in my opinion, is Scream 3. As 4 was good, 5 was better than 4, but this, this is probably the best sequel. I have to say it, it's probably the best sequel from an action standpoint and a screenwriting standpoint. I also like the performances here from Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, and all the cast in this film. It was nice to see Kirby back in the franchise. It was nice to see Gail Weathers back. This was just a great sequel. Literally. And the fact that you would think it would go downhill that Nev Campbell would not be in this film. You forgot Nev Campbell was even there. They did mention Sydney in this film, but you just forgot that she was even in this franchise, literally. That's just a testament to a great screenplay, great action. Seriously. I also liked the beginning of this film, too, as it had a different feel compared to all the other screen films. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's just a cool opening. Literally, it's probably the best opening to a Scream film. It's like, when I heard this all-or-nothing approach, I was thinking to myself, they're probably either hyping it up or this is just going to feel big time. But no, it's just, I was shocked for two hours. I was amazed. That this is such a great film. And the fact that the twists kept coming and coming. Literally. And that killer twist at the end. I didn't see it coming. Seriously. Literally. I thought, hey, we were getting a shocking moment in the franchise. Then another shocking moment. It's like, what the bleep here, people. I love the third act of this film is great once they're in the theater that's all i'm telling you about that third act but once we get into that theater in that third act that was perfection seriously that's one of the best third acts i've seen in quite a while it's like you're thinking one thing's happening then the next the next minute another thing is happening it's like you got layers of twists here going on You're leading one twist and think, oh my god, this is happening. What the hell? Are you kidding? What the bleep? It's like, why? Seriously, that third act alone in Scream 6 is worth seeing this film. 
Literally. It is by far, I think, the best Scream sequel. I would not put it as the best Scream film. But as for sequels, this has to be the best sequel. And this is probably the best horror film that takes place in New York. Seriously. Because I'm surprised horror filmmakers don't use New York often as a backdrop. Because seriously, this film should have been Jason Takes Manhattan. But thankfully, Scream 6 doesn't become Jason Takes Manhattan. As Scream 6 is just excellent here. Radio Silence and the other co-writer, James Vanderbilt, do a great job in this film. Whether it's the screenplay or the direction. This is just great work here, people. I don't know if I'm going to see a better film this year. Seriously. I know, we're in March. And we still have Evil Dead Rising to come. If that's not bonkers enough. 2023 is a crazy year. I keep saying 2023 is a crazy year. It's becoming a crazy year. Because Scream 6 has no business being a great sequel. Because A, you're in a sixth film. And B, I would have thought it was going to step down because of this all or nothing approach. But Radio Silence and James Vanderbilt do a great job here. That Scream 6 is definitely, literally, going to be a contender for best film of 2023. Now I want to talk a little spoilers here about the ending of this film and why I liked the third act of this film. So if you have not seen this film, I suggest... You shut off this podcast, have a good day, support indie wrestling, support indie horror, and check out the next episode as I will have an interview or two. Because I will be talking about spoilers to Scream 6 and this third act, which I feel the need I need to talk about because it's just great, literally. In 3, 2, 1. One of the reasons why I think Scream 6 had a great third act here is the way it plays games here with who's the killer in a way that I don't think any of the Scream films have done. And the other ones you probably could guess, but it's like, it's not done in a way where, oh my god, this person's doing this, this person's doing this. Like, the last 30 minutes was just bonkers, literally. First, you had the cop calling Sam and saying that Kirby's the killer. This is like my thoughts. Oh my god, are they going down this road where a previous survivor is a killer? It's like, what the hell? It's like, what? Literally. I was like hooked into this theory here. Seriously. Because that would be all or nothing, everybody. Have a previous character from the franchise become Ghostface. But no, that did not happen. Instead, you don't have one killer. You don't have two killers. You have, wait for it, three killers in this film. And here's the thing. My theory going into this film was that this was probably a cult of Ghostface. I was wrong about that because... It wasn't a cult of Ghostface. It was a family of Ghostface. Literally. Because the killer's reveal was 
so effectively done very well here. Because literally, I did not expect A, Detective Bailey to be a killer. B, I could probably see Ethan Landry being a killer. But C, Quinn Bailey a killer? Now, that was the most shocking of the three. Because earlier in the film, we thought that character was dead. We even see a scene where she's all bloodied and everything. We thought she died. For her to come back in that scene was just shocking. Literally. And the fact was even more shocking was they were all tied to Richie from the last film. It's just so shocking, everyone. Literally. You have a family of ghost face killers, everyone. That was ballsy on Radio Silence and James Vanderbilt's pot to go in this direction. Have a family of killers in this film. As it really was stunning. Literally. Because one character was supposedly dead. Because you thought we saw her die. I didn't think Dermot Mahoney would be coming into the franchise just to be a killer but he did and literally it was just well executed from the fact that it first led you to believe oh it's a previous character from a previous screen film as the Ghostface killer then we find out it's a family full of killers and we can add Richie too there because it does a great job connecting Scream 6 to Scream 5 and another thing that I want to backtrack is that opening sequence in this film where we see Samara weaving with an Australian accent, which is very rare because we've noticed her in films talking an American accent. I like the fact that Radio Silence went with this decision to have Samara weaving talk in her native language. Australian because it really made it different first for the actress because we don't see her act in her native language really gave a dimension to her character even though her character was short-lived in this film but still that was good you have her killed off by a character played by Tony Revolori who was in the Spider-Man films the recent ones and we see him going to this party and him meeting up with Tara. And I'm thinking to myself, are they giving us the killer in the first five minutes of this film? Literally? It would fit the all or nothing approach, ladies and gentlemen. Because that's what I came in thinking this film was. All or nothing. But his character was also dispatched quickly too. Scream 6 is just an excellent film. Literally. It's going to be hard for this film to be knocked off as the top film of 2023. Literally. I'm being honest. Evil Dead Rise coming out next month. I don't know. Seriously. It's going to be probably one of those two films that has the chance to go wire to wire. <laughs> Literally. It's just really insane. Well, enough with the Scream 6 talk. We've talked way too long here on this film. But it's worth talking about because A, it's a major film, everyone. So I am going to talk about it in detail if I have to. 
So I want to thank you for listening to this podcast again. Next episode, I will have two interviews. Not telling you who the guests are. I'm working on a guest. So I know I will have possibly two interviews. But it will be most likely an interview-only episode. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a good day. Support indie wrestling and support indie horror. This has been a Film Arcade Media production.